Uh, let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. There should be developing a crease in your Bible where Hosea is. Unless you're just a really spiritual person who reads all of the Bible all the time, you have no creases. I have a new Bible. I got a big crease in Hosea. And I'm hoping that what Hosea says will make a big crease in my life today. <laughs> today we're in chapter 9. And yes, there's even more judgment here today. And uh, we've got to learn to think about and hear judgment in a different kind of way. Uh, what is God's reason for warning his people uh, so repetitively in the book of Hosea. It is to get them to wake up. If I know an earthquake is coming way ahead of time and I don't warn people, what kind of person am I? Or if a house is on fire and I don't warn those in it to get out or they will perish, what kind of person am I? And any kind of disaster uh, or any kind of danger impending, uh, it is important to warn and God's mercy and compassion is so limitless that he constantly rebukes his people and pronounces judgment over them to uh, evoke out of them genuine repentance. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read the entirety of chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples. For you have played the whore forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of, appo of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettle shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but... They came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, 
no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must let his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their de uh, deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the book of Hosea. As it cuts through all the haze and all the uh, denial and all of the um, fog of who we are and where we are and what we're doing. And we pray that you would use this word today to awaken us. To bring about a sense of spiritual renewal in all of our hearts. That we would hear your word today, really grapple with it, really uh, let it take us to task. So that you might bring us to yourself to experience refreshment and a renewed heart. And we pray this believing in Jesus' name. Amen. When you hear the word home, I wonder what kind of images and ideas the word home evokes for you. For most people, not all people, because I realize that not everyone can claim to have come from a healthy or good home. But for most people, or a lot of people, home represents a place of belonging, a place of security, a place of rest, a place hopefully where there's love. Home is sort of that kind of place where you can kick off your shoes and not feel you have to impress anybody or you have to win approval from anyone. You can let your hair down because you're in your sanctuary. That's what the idea or image of home evokes in a lot of minds. Now I have to tell you something. I have to confess up right away this morning. My home has been totally out of sorts since Thursday. We lost internet connection. It has not yet been restored. We all have been sitting in our living room looking at one another going, what do we do? What did we used to do before we didn't have this? Did we actually talk to one another? Did we, you know, and, and I, I'm not calling any names, but there are a couple of people detoxing as I speak over not having internet. I just thought I'd throw that in there to lighten this judgment mood a little bit. But home, home. What do you think about when you think about home? When God first made mankind, he placed them in a home. Genesis 1:31 tells us, God saw everything he made and behold, it was very good. The whole world was good. And yet, even in a good world, God plants a special garden for his people. 
God still makes a specific place that will ultimately be home for humanity. The whole world is good, but only Eden is home. Let me repeat that. The whole world is good, but only Eden is home. But Adam rebelled against God's rule. God had provided a home for us, a place of plenty, provision, security, and safety. But we believe the lie of Satan that we would be more free without God than with him. And we still believe it every time we sin. We still think we will be more free without God. But in the end, we end up more enslaved by sin and by self. That is the insanity of the fallen human race. Insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again, hoping for what? A different result. Why do we sin? Because we're insane. Sin always enslaves. Sin always destroys that sensation of being home. So, God brought judgment upon humanity, and that judgment involved exile. They were exiled or removed or kicked out of the garden. In Genesis 3.24, we are told that God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim with flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Humanity now lives east of Eden, away from home, homeless, as it were. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God's judgment is this. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. His judgment is to be homeless and rootless. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. He lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Adam and Eve were east of Eden, away from home. Now Cain is further east of Eden, further from home. But we all know as we continue the biblical narrative that God in his grace comes to a man by the name of Abram who later changes his name to Abraham and promises a new start, a new beginning. And at the heart of that promise is a promise of what? A home. He called it the land I want to give you. I want to give you a land of promise. But for Abraham it represented what? Home. And so we know that by the time we get to the book of Exodus, Abraham's family has become a great nation in captivity, just as God promised. But they are slaves. They live in Egypt. They're still far from home. They are far from home geographically, for they are not yet in the land. And God had promised that to Abraham, and they were far from home metaphorically, for they were not enjoying at that moment as slaves any sense of belonging, security, and provision that home represents. But God has not abandoned his promises. He is about to lead them to home through what we call, and the Bible calls, the greatest historical redemptive event in the Old Testament, the exodus out of Egypt. And so he brought his people out under the leadership of Moses. God liberated his people from slavery through the ten plagues, through Passover, through the parting of the Red Sea, and he led his people to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. 
And in Hosea chapter 9 and verse 10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Hosea is alluding here to the way God met with Israel in the desert. It was at Mount Sinai that Israel became a nation. A generation later, to kill off an unbelieving generation, marching in the wilderness for 40 years, Joshua leads the people to the promised land. And God fights for his people. And they took the land. And they drove out most of the inhabitants. And God gave them rest in the land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they were home. And home was a place of rest and provision and protection. And this home for Israel was in reality a picture and a pointer to God's ultimate plan. His ultimate plan of shalom, a new home for a new humanity. The book of 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 says, In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Our exile from God's presence will be over. Our restless wandering will be done. We will have come home. Last week we saw an eagle is over the house of the Lord. That's an allusion to Deuteronomy. The Lord is bringing a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down. And that eagle is hovering over the nation Israel at this moment in the form of the Assyrian army. And the allusion to Deuteronomy 28 is important because it takes, it is taken from the covenant curses that Moses proclaimed to God's people as they were about to enter their new home. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, Moses proclaimed the blessings that would flow if the people kept covenant and the curses that would fall if they broke covenant and disobeyed him. At the heart of these curses was the curse of exile. Israel would be scattered and exiled. She would have no resting place, no home. She would return to Egypt and return to slavery. The exodus would go into reverse. Now an eagle is hovering over Israel. It seems the implementation of the curses are imminent. And the iniquity, uh, and God says at the end of chapter 8, he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins, they shall return to Egypt. The Bible story, as it were, goes into reverse here. That Israel will return to slavery like the slavery of Egypt. The exodus will be undone. It is the theme to which Hosea returns in chapter 9. And so let's talk a moment this morning about the exodus being reversed. In this verse, Hosea is probably speaking to people during a harvest festival. That is verse 1. It's during a harvest festival. And the festivities were organized by Jeroboam to sort of mirror the ones that happened in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And in Israelite agriculture, the wheat was beaten to detach the grains from the outer husk, also known as chaff. The wheat and the chaff were separated through being tossed up in the air. 
And the wind would blow away the lighter chaff, leaving the wheat behind. So threshing places were normally a very communal space in an elevated position where they could catch the wind. And so threshing places were usually high up where they could be seen. This made them ideally suited for local festivities. It may be that Baal worship was now involved since Baal was a fertility cult. So the reference to prostitution, by the way, those of you who hate the word whore in this book, you're done with it, okay? It's over. It doesn't happen anymore. And I'm kind of happy about that. I don't like saying the word that much. But anyway, it may be that Baal worship Baal, as you know, was a fertility cult, so the reference to prostitution may not be literal prostitution, but to spiritual infidelity and unfaithfulness and disloyalty. Perhaps there's a lull in the Assyrian aggression and everything looks rosy at the moment, but the real problem has not gone away, for the real problem is the problem of God's verdict against his people. Note the word for. No matter how great the harvest, the issue with God and them remains. Verse 1 describes their festival in the present, and all seems well, but Israel should not be deceived by this prosperity. The future festivals will look very different. And he tells us that in verses 2 through 5. The exodus is going to go in reverse. As the people return to Egypt, Ephraim, the name for Israel, shall return to Egypt. This reference, of course, is metaphorical. They didn't go back into slavery literally in Egypt, but through God's judgment, they would be exiled by the Assyrians, an exile like a return to slavery in Egypt. Then what will the day of the appointed feast look like? Like a funeral wake. That's what it will look like. They will not be able to offer sacrifices in the temple, so their festive food will be unclean. Like funeral food, as you know in the Old Testament, a dead body in the house made all who ate there unclean. There was uh, not a problem when you could go to the temple and be cleansed, but to be in exile would be to be away from any temple, and you would remain unclean before the Lord. Egypt will gather them, and it will capture them, and become a cemetery to them. I'm interested in the word Memphis and why it's in here. I grew up very near there, spent a lot of time there. And the only thing I could find out, the reason it's in the text, is there was a big cemetery there, huge cemetery in Memphis, Egypt. So I don't know how noteworthy that is, but it's fascinating to me. But what he's talking about is life in exile will be death. It will be like death. It will smell like death. Again, Hosea is talking about exile in Assyria, but he's saying it's going to be like a reversal of the exodus. Who wants to proclaim rejoice not? Who wants to be a killjoy? But what if disaster is coming? Leave the party could be the words of a killjoy, but not if the venue is on fire. Few people like to warn of God's coming judgment, but it is the most loving thing to do if it's true. And it's hard to get people to think about God's judgment when everything around us is going well. 
It's hard to get people to think about judgment when things are pleasant and going well. It was hard for Hosea. It was hard for Peter. Peter talks about people in his epistle who mock the notion of a coming judgment because life in the present is currently so good. But he says they overlook two things. First, God has a track record. God had already destroyed the earth when he flooded the world during the time of Noah, and he will do it again a second time, except this time not water, but fire to cleanse the earth. Second, the Lord, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We might think judgment is slow in coming, but God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as we look at verses 7 through 9, the words punishment and punish at the beginning of verse 7 and the end of verse 9 bracket these verses. These verses could mean the community is attacking the prophet Hosea. If you have an NIV translation, it says, because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool and the inspired person a maniac. Or this verse could mean Hosea is attacking another prophet or prophets. This is how the ESV, which I just read from, translated The prophet is a fool and the man of the spirit is mad or a lunatic. In either case, the rejection of God's word is symbolized by the ill treatment of prophets. If the ESV is appropriate, the people are rejecting God's word in favor of the false prophets whom Hosea attacks. Verse 8 then becomes very sarcastic. The prophet is supposed to be a watchman, but he cannot protect the people. The snares that await on all his paths describe how Israel's various attempts to find peace and prosperity apart from God will end in disaster. As a result, the nation's in deep trouble. Jesus alludes to chapter 9, verse 7, in Luke 21, 22, for these are, the days are, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And we know the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 will be another fulfillment of the punishment here described by Hosea. A watchman keeps a lookout for an invading enemy. But what if God is your enemy? It is God's prophets who are supposed to be watchmen against God's advance. But that makes God a strange enemy. He's an enemy who warns of his own coming. He refuses to launch a surprise attack. Instead, he warns us over and over and over to repent and escape. Throughout this section, Hosea highlights the ways the story of Exodus will go in reverse. God's people set his people free, but they now have enslaved themselves. They have sold themselves among the nations. They are receiving the curses of violating his covenant. God took his people from Egypt, but now the people will return to Egypt. They shall return to Egypt. Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Egypt was a symbol for slavery in foreign hands. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. 
God led his people from the wilderness to an abundant land, but now the land itself is going to become for them a wilderness. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars, and thorns will overrun their tents. In other words, the Bible story that I began with is now running in reverse. Israel will return to slavery, slavery like the slavery they experienced in Egypt. The exodus will be undone. Israel will be homeless. Verses nine, or chapter 9, verse 10, if the story were a movie, it would open this way. With a beautiful panning shot in rich colors, with God discovering great field oasis in the wilderness, then the picture would switch to a spring morning and the new fruit on the fig tree, grapes in the wilderness, a symbol of the unexpected, perhaps an oasis. Even if you're not a gardener or you're not a farmer, you can imagine the excitement of seeing the first fruits of a coming harvest, especially in an agrarian society and culture. Both images capture God's delight in his people but things soon went so wrong so very wrong so quickly the first half of verse 9 or yes verse 10 describes the first love between God and his bride Israel the but at the beginning of the next line signifies or signals how tragically the relationship will break down. What is the story of Baal Peor? Well, it's told to us in Numbers 25, and I'm not going to give too much detail here, but Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Balak, the king of Moab, feared the threat posed by this new nation as they were coming out of Egypt across the Red Sea. And now this nation was encamped on his doorstep, so he hired Balaam to go and curse Israel. But Balaam could, Balaam could speak only what God allowed, so in fact, he blessed Israel. Balaam then tried another approach, which tragically was much more successful. He advised Balak to send Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel, involve them, and involve them in the worship of Baal. The place where this happened was Peor. God had rescued his people from Egypt so that they might know him and worship him, but instead they are knowing Moabite women and worshiping Baal. And as a result, they become a detestable like the thing they loved. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust them, Psalm 115 tells us. At Baal Peor, 24,000 Israelites died of a plague under God's judgment. What would happen now that Israel was again worshiping Baal? In answer to this question, the reversal story reaches its dreadful conclusion in verses 11 through 13. The glory of Ephraim, or Ephraim, another term for Israel in verse 11, is her children. The glory of Ephraim contrasts with its shame in verse 10. Its glory is the children with which God has blessed her. Its shame is the worship of Baal. As a result of that choice to go after shame, there will be no more glory. And that means there will be no more children, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Those who are born will be slaughtered as in the Assyrian army conquering. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. They will disappear like a flock of birds departing. 
In chapter 2 of the same book, Hosea metaphorically described God's judgment on Israel as the stripping naked of an adulterous wife. Now he warns that Israel will be stripped of all her glory, her king, her wealth, her children, her relationship with him. In chapter 8, God promised no fertility in the field and any produce will be destroyed by a foreign, foreign army. Then in verse 14, Hosea says, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Hosea seems to pause here in prayer. Give them, what, sh God, what should God give them? What should Hosea ask for? He asks for adversity because it might lead to repentance. In the same way, we often pray, Lord, please deliver our loved ones from adversity or use it to strengthen their faith or lead them to Christ. But in verses 15 through 17, he begins to tell us the crime. Verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to help them. Gilgal was where Saul first became Israel's king. Or Israel's first king. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. When the people first asked for a king, the prophet Samuel sort of takes it personally. But God says to him, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so the appointment of Saul at Gilgal was the physical embodiment of Israel's rejection of God as king. That is why every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. Every sin is an act of rebellion against the rule and kingship of God. But Gilgal tells in miniature the story of humanity. We might as well say, Every evil of humanity is in Eden. All sin stems from the original rejection of God's rule by Adam in the Garden of Eden. God has led his people from wandering in the wilderness into the promised land. Now he's going to drive them out of the land and send them back to wandering in the wilderness. The language of driving people out of the land is not new in the biblical story. God had promised he would drive out the Canaanite inhabitants in the land so that he could give it to Israel. And so he sent his angel before them and they drove out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and every other ite that was there. I had a pastor once who also added the termites, but I just I couldn't do it. Just can't do that. The story of salvation is going into reverse. The story that began in verse 10 in the wilderness where God found Israel, where he loved her, where he prospered her, where he gave her the land, the story is ending in verse 17 with Israel back in the wilderness wandering among the nations. Now let me tell you something. If the story ends here, it's over. But the exodus is renewed. The good news is that Hosea chapter 9 is not the end of the biblical story. To understand what happens next in the story and how hope emerges from this judgment, we need to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He is Emmanuel. In the Hebrew, Emmanuel means with. El means God. He is God with us. But he is also us. He is also humanity. 
Jesus is God's people. Indeed, Jesus is the true people of God. The prophets speak of a faithful remnant, the people within Israel who remain faithful to God. The nation as a whole may be unfaithful in heading for judgment, but some people remain faithful and they will be served. They are the true people of God. But in the overall story of Jesus, the faithful remnant comes down to one person, to one person, just one, to Jesus. Scriptures tell us on the night he was betrayed, his disciples betrayed him or denied him, or fled in fear, and there was no one left except Jesus. It is a graphic demonstration that in the end, only Jesus is truly faithful. None of us has kept God's law as we should. None of us have trusted God as we should. None of us has obeyed God as we should. None of us have worshipped God as we should. None of us except Jesus. In the end, the faithful remnant is just one person. In Jesus, the reversal of the exodus reaches its climax. In Jesus, a remarkable thing happens. In Jesus, upon the cross, the curses of the climax are poured out in full upon him. The one who is faithful and deserves only the blessings of the covenant takes upon himself the curses of the covenant. God's judgment falls on Jesus in our place. The section of Hosea closes with these words, My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nation. On the cross, God did reject his people in the person of his son. And at the ninth hour, we know Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabachthani. I'm not speaking in tongues, that's Greek. Which means... My God, Eloi, El, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the reversal of the story reaches its climax at the cross. Instead of blessing, there's a curse. Instead of a land of promise, there's a land of darkness. Instead of milk and honey, there's thirst. Jesus cries upon the cross, what? I thirst, no milk and honey for him. Instead of family, there's total separation. In Galatians 3, Paul tells us in verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27, from the midst of the covenant curses. Everyone who does not keep God's covenant will be cursed. They will experience the reversal of the exodus, the exile of God. But Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. One of the ways to distinguish a person who had been cursed is when they killed them, they hung them up on a tree to show that that person had been cursed. Peter referred to, in his epistles, the cross as a tree, very much like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And so the cross is a tree. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus experienced the full extent of the exodus reversal and the curse of exile. As a result, he accomplished a new exodus, the real exodus, the true exodus. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who rescued us from the slavery of sin and death and brings us home to a new creation in the presence of God. He puts the story back on track. He endured judgment that we deserve so that we can enjoy the promised ending of the story to come home to God and to be a part of his family. Henry Nowen, who wrote a book on the prodigal son, and I like that book mainly because I have the picture, the book is about, it's a picture Rembrandt painted of the prodigal son returning home. But Nowen is an interesting person in himself. I don't know how many of you know much about him, but he's a Catholic priest who... Uh, was very brilliant, very well educated, ended up being a professor at Notre Dame, probably the highest realm he could have ever moved into, and became convicted that he needed to go live on an island where a leper colony was. And as he moves to that island, God begins to take him apart, piece by piece by piece. But he says this, he said, leaving home, it's much more than a historical event bound to time and space. It is a denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being, that God holds me safe in an eternal embrace, that I am de indeed carved in the palms of his hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home means ignoring the truth that God has fashioned me in secret, molded me in the depths of the earth, knitted me together in my mother's room, womb, Leaving home is living as though I don't yet have a home and must look for one far and wide to find it. Home, he says, is the center of my being where I can hear the voice that says, You are my beloved, and on you my favor rests. The same voice that gave life to the first Adam and spoke to Jesus the second Adam, the same voice that speaks to all the children of God and sets them free to live in the midst of a dark world while remaining in the light. And so that's what Nowen says home is. Home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved and on you my favor rest that's what Jesus did he died in darkness he was abandoned he was all alone and he did this so we could come home and hear the words of favor expressed upon the son over the son expressed upon us since you call on 
Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter here is using the language of the Exodus, of Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb who redeemed or liberated from sin and death. The new Exodus of Jesus is given as a reason for us understanding that our lives our home, we've been given a home, we've been given a land. Jesus has won for us a home, which is already full of good things. We don't have to win it, we don't have to work for it, but we have to live as those who are homeward bound. You remember uh, John chapter 14? Jesus says what? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many what? Mansions or rooms. What's his point? I'm going to prepare a home for you. I'm going to prepare a home for you. That's where your home is. And you are never going to feel at home ultimately until you are home there. But on the way, we can still hear those words of acceptance and approval. You, because you are united to my son by faith, are adopted children into my family and I am well pleased with you because of what my son has done on your behalf. You've got to understand this. If Christianity is me living up to standards well enough to be accepted by God, I'm in the deepest trouble I could possibly know. I might as well close the Bible and go live like a, a reprobate. Might as well. But the hope of Christianity is not what I do. It's what Jesus has done. It's not what I've accomplished, it's what he's accomplished. It's not what I achieve, it's what I receive from him freely as a gift. And that's why I can stand and proclaim it with such joy and boldness because it is the most liberating thing you can know. And so we're not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal or steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The tragedy is that many uh, Christians live for the treasures of this passing age. And it's a tragedy. Wealth will never satisfy us. It will never take us home. We know that advertising promises satisfaction, but that all ads are designed to create dissatisfaction. <laughs> And go, go make us try to buy more satisfaction. And wealth corrodes. It's fragile. It's fleeting. Moth and rust destroyed. Thieves break in and steal. It's like sand slipping through our fingers. Years ago, I read an essay by Francis Schaeffer entitled Ash Heap Lives. Schaeffer describes how each week as a boy, he would uh, go for a walk. But to get to the countryside, he had to walk past the city dump. It was a place of junk, he said, fire, stench. Even as a boy, I realized that I saw almost everything people spend their money for at that dump. That was where their investment ended. He said this. It's in your bullet if you want to read it. Death is a thief. 
Five minutes after we die, our most treasured possessions, which are invested in this life, are absolutely robbed from us. In our culture, nothing has exhibited such folly more than our automobiles. Go to a showroom and see the pride with which a man drives out his new car and loses 15000 just getting out of the parking lot. Go to a showroom and see the pride with which a man drives out in his new car. Think of an automobile graveyard or a rusting, stripped, junked-out car abandoned on a city street. They are shells screaming out tremendous sermons against all practical materialism. You're fools, you're fools, you're fools. And Christians, as well as anyone other, any others, can be fools with their wealth. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are foreigners. The world as it is now is not my home. I pass through life looking ahead for something bigger, something better. One day this earth will be a home of righteousness. But only when we arrive at the heavenly version of this earth, only when the earth comes under a new regime, only when Christ is the center and his glory fills the horizons. We all need to find our way home. Some of you are homeless. Some of you don't have that security. You don't have that sense of safety. You don't have that sense of joy. You don't have that sense of peace and rest in your soul. Your soul is troubled. Tell the truth. Underneath all the busyness, your soul is troubled because you're not home yet. And you need to find home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Again, it is amazing. That it gives us such bad, bad news, so, such reality that bites, such overwhelming sense of lostness and hopelessness. But at the same time, it gives us the greatest reason to be people of hope that we could ever know. And it is through a living relationship with the Lord Jesus. We pray for people in this room today to stop trusting and relying upon themselves to find home and to come home and be welcomed into the arms of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who look forward to going home, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.